We are, the Lord willing, going to begin a new sermon series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're going to begin that today. It will hopefully run for a number of months. There's six chapters in there. A very important letter. Um, Our text will come from Galatians, but we're going to do a background reading from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13, verse 44. I neglected to add that to the liturgy, but that is what we are hoping to read this morning. Acts 13, verse 44. This is some background information about the people to whom Paul wrote this letter. We'll read Acts 13, verse 44 to 14, verse 6, 7. So Paul and his companions have been preaching the gospel, and the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit." Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now we turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians, the letter that he later wrote to these same people that we read about. And we're going to read the first five verses. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, 
according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is the one thing that our culture prizes more than anything else? What is the one thing our culture prizes more than anything else? It would have to be personal freedom. We live in an age that is very much about being free. And that desire is not limited by any particular political or social background. In the last two years, we've heard lots about personal freedom and connection with COVID-related issues. Maybe some of you have been part of that discussion. Maybe you felt that the government was restricting your freedoms, your personal freedoms, in ways that you thought were not appropriate. And even if you didn't, you probably had to consider the extent and the nature of your personal freedoms at some point during the last two years. Everybody's had to come to terms with that. But you find the same discussion about freedom in other places as well, sometimes on very different ends of the political, social spectrum. For instance, you may realize that this month is Pride Month, In many places in the world, people celebrate pride in their sexual orientation through marches, events, and rainbow-colored flags. They want to be free to love whoever they want. And the transgender movement has taken that even further. They say that you can be whatever gender you want. If you're a biological male and you want to identify as a female or the other way around or something in between or whatever you can think of, you should be free to do that. Now, there are a lot of misunderstandings as to what freedom, true freedom, is about. But the more relevant question for us this morning is do we, as Free Reformed Church at Mundajong, actually understand this? Do we understand what true freedom is about? Later on in this letter in Galatians 2 verse 4, Paul refers to our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. What freedom is he talking about? What does it mean? What is this Christian freedom of which he speaks? It's important for us to get this right. If you don't, you're going to go through life misunderstanding what the gospel is actually about then the gospel becomes an addition to your life instead of the central point that the rest of your life is supposed to revolve around. So this is an important, urgent issue for us to consider. We're going to spend some time in the next number of months, the Lord willing, considering this very question. And we're going to do so by examining this very letter, this letter of Paul to the Galatians. Galatians is a very important letter. If you understand this letter, you will have a good grasp on your relationship to the Old Testament church, to the covenant of promise, 
and to all of the things that the Lord says in His Word. You're going to understand what true Christian freedom is actually about. And hopefully you will gain a deeper appreciation for the gospel. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians. It's quite possibly the earliest New Testament epistle. He would have written it around A.D. 48, soon after his first missionary journey. During that first journey, he had traveled through the Roman province of Galatia. You can read about that in Acts 13 through 14. We, we read part of that this morning. So he visited the Galatian cities of Pisidian, Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe. And many people came to faith, and they received the gospel with great joy. But now they seem to have lost it. Why? What's going on? Now there are clues in the letter that help us to put together a picture. False teachers had infiltrated the Galatian churches. They were teaching, basically they were teaching, you, you can be a Christian if you want to be, but you need to be a Jew first. You want to believe in Jesus? That's fine, but you need to become Jewish first. First you become Jewish, then you become Christian. That means that your men need to be circumcised. You need to keep all of the Jewish holy days. So it's not just faith in Christ. It's faith plus. And the Galatian Christians, these were new believers. They come from a heathen background. And they became uncertain. And they're wondering, did Paul actually teach us the whole truth? Have we got the whole gospel now or don't we? Are we missing something? And it's easy for them to feel that way because they don't actually have all that much knowledge. They felt intimidated by these false teachers with their knowledge of the very intricate Old Testament laws and systems. And so they, they get this nagging sense in the back of their mind. Is faith in Christ enough or not? Am I missing something in the Christian life? What's wrong with me? And some of them had already begun to keep the Jewish holy days. Just to be sure, Paul refers to that in 4 verse 10. So this letter is a letter written in great haste. He had to get it down. He had to get it out to them. If he doesn't get this to them now, there will be no church left. He was really concerned. He wants them to make sure they get the gospel right. So already here at the very beginning of the letter, in the first five verses, he lays out the basics of what he's going to talk about. And so even if you miss everything else that he says in the letter, at least in the introduction, he wants you to understand what he's about. So the introduction is a summary in a sense of what is going to follow. And the burning question behind that is, what is the true gospel about? And in one word, the true gospel is about deliverance. The true gospel is about deliverance. In these first five verses, the true gospel is about deliverance by the work of God from the judgment of God, for the glory of God. So let's go through this line by line. The first thing we should note is that the gospel is not from men. Paul says in verse 1 that the true gospel is not from men, nor through men. And he's not saying that people by nature are unspiritual. The fact is that everybody's religious in their own way. 
even while people who are hardline atheists would disagree with that. But the fact of the matter is that there is a yearning for the transcendent in mankind. People understand intuitively on some level that life has to be more than the sum of its parts. And ironically, out of all places, you find that reflected the most often in advertising. For instance, if you've recently headed south on the southwestern highway, you drive, say, from Byford to Mundajong along the southwestern highway, and you turn off on Kiernan Street. You follow Kiernan Street for a while until you get close to Whitby. Then there's a property on the left-hand side. There's a real estate sign on that property. It still was there last one I checked a few weeks ago. And it says, for sale, two slices of heaven. You seen that sign? It's actually a theological statement. It suggests that the buyer can get more than just a piece of land. Buy this piece of land and you'll get something more than just land. You're going to get something more than just the sum of its parts. You're going to get something transcendent. And that's how people think. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says that God has put eternity into man's heart. Every single person who lives has some level of awareness of these things in his heart or her heart. But then Ecclesiastes goes on to say, yet he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, by nature, all people are inclined to be religious on some level or to have some sort of a spiritual orientation. But unless God reveals himself to them, they will worship the wrong things. And that's why the opening words of this epistle are so important. Paul says he is an apostle, not from men, nor through man. So what's an apostle? Well, an apostle is someone who was sent. That's what the word means. It is someone who was sent. It is a messenger. Jesus appointed the 12 disciples as his apostles, specifically says it in Luke 6.13. Judas, who betrayed him and committed suicide, was later replaced by Matthias. And Paul was called last of all, but he was called by Jesus himself. And if you want to read that story, he talks about it in Acts, but he also refers to it later on in Galatians chapter 1. And when Paul went and saw the other apostles, much later they acknowledged his call and they endorsed his ministry. So an apostle is someone who is personally commissioned by Jesus Christ, or in Matthias' case, by the people who had personally known Christ. And that's important to keep in mind because it means if we, if the Galatians or we were to ask, why should we believe anything that Paul says or writes? Well, the answer is that he was personally appointed by Christ. That sets Paul's words apart from those of the false teachers. When he preaches the gospel, he speaks with divine authority. That's why we can say that this letter too is the word of God. That's how you know who to believe. Because he was personally commissioned by Christ. It is interesting, by the way, that the Roman Catholics have a very different view on that. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that there are two sources of authority, which are, if you're my catechism student, you should know this, it is tradition and scripture. According to them, tradition came first. 
Scripture was born out of tradition. The church has many traditions. The Roman Catholic Church has many traditions which are not in Scripture at all. And they say that only the church can interpret Scripture. So the church is at liberty to add doctrines that are not in the Bible, like, for example, their teachings on the Virgin Mary or on purgatory. But the fact is that tradition did not give birth to the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1, verse 21 says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying that he's an apostle not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So that means there is only one true gospel. Every other gospel is false. And it is the most politically incorrect thing that you can say in this day and age. People do not appreciate that. People will tell you that you are intolerant, that you are bigoted, but the Bible says it's true. There is no other gospel except for this one. Every other gospel is false. How do you know that it's false? Because invariably it will detract from the person and the work of Christ. For example, some of you have been to the Mundajong Market. And you may have seen a booth there from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Personally, I've only seen them once, but I don't go that often. Maybe they come some of the time. Maybe some of you have seen them. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a booth there occasionally. And the Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. They spread a false gospel. Their gospel detracts from the person of Christ. They do not believe that the Son of God is the Son of God in the way that we understand that word. They say Jesus Christ was a created being. He is God with a lowercase g, but not the eternal Son of God in the way that we understand it. And verse 1 argues against that. Right out of the gates, it says, Paul, not an apostle, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So not only does his authority come from Christ, but he distinguishes here between ordinary men and Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Do you see that in verse 1? He sets up these two categories. There's men, things from men and through man, and then there's through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is more than just man. And you see also that the word through applies to Jesus Christ and God the Father. So these two belong together. They belong in the same category. You get man, and then you get Jesus Christ and God the Father. It's, it's, there's a Trinitarian theology underlying this. That's where the true gospel comes from. So we're only halfway into the first verse, and he has already said a lot of um, fundamental things that will guide our understanding of the rest of what he says. And it forces us again to consider that same question. Do we have the true gospel? Do you have the true gospel? Are you sure? Think of our youth. They grow up in a very sheltered and protected world. If you, dear youth, knew how sheltered you are, it's a good thing to be sheltered from this world But you grow up in the triangle of home, school, and church. Sometimes the youth, they graduate, they go to work for a Christian employer. 
It's a lot of the same thing, the same sort of circle of people, the same type of thinking. And maybe, maybe the youth don't think about that at all. But then one day they, they become aware there's a very different world out there. And they, they come out of the free reform bubble. And that term is not meant pejoratively. The, our free reform community is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing, but it is a very um, enclosed thing. And when you come out of that bubble, you might realize there are a lot of other denominations out there who claim to be Christian. Many other people even who are not Christians at all, but they're still very kind people. Maybe some of them would put the people that you know that are reformed to shame. And you start to wonder, kind of like the Galatians did. I've been taught a whole lot of stuff, but how much of it is actually true? Is it complete? How do we know for sure that we've got it right? Our practices seem so exclusive. But you need to understand, the true gospel is not just something practiced by the FRC, the Free Reformed Churches of Australia. The true gospel is the gospel as it was handed down by the apostles. And this, in this very first verse, the Apostle Paul wants to remind us of that. The true gospel is about deliverance by the work of God. Everything else revolves around that. But the thing that makes us who we are is that one central truth that God is a God who delivers. That's a message that Paul brings. An apostle not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And that bit about raising Christ from the dead tells us what the gospel is really about. It, it highlights it, it underlines it, because the gospel is that Jesus died for sinners. Paul quotes from the Old Testament later on in 3 verse 10 when he says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And do them. Have you done all things written in the book of the law? We have not. We have not kept God's commands. And so, apart from Christ, we deserve that curse. But he took that curse on himself. That's why he died on a cross. And Paul later writes in 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus is the only person who could have done that. One who is both God and man. And that's why the true gospel will always focus on the person and the work of Christ. As soon as you lose one of those two, you've lost the gospel. So Paul says God the Father raised him from the dead. And, and that, that really encapsulates a lot of this because it reminds us that Jesus was the one person who did not deserve to die. He was completely innocent. He had to die because death is the ultimate punishment for sin. He bore our sins. He died for our sins, not his own. When he died, the law had no more claim on him. That's why God raised him from the dead. And Paul's reminding us of that here in the last half of this first verse. There's no divine curse left for those who belong to Christ. There's no divine wrath for those who are united to Christ. There's no divine punishment for those who are in Christ. It is completely a work of God from beginning to end. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants to convey to us in this first verse of this letter. He wants us to be absolutely sure that you never lose sight of Christ. 
That's why he can go on to say in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? It's God's undeserved favor. What's peace? Peace between God and man. And that peace comes back at the end in 6 verse 16 when he ends his letter. So this is going, we're going to find out in the next months that this is a forceful and shocking letter that, that Paul has a, a, a kind of a righteous anger that you sense in the background when he writes his letter, but it begins and it ends with peace. The true gospel is about deliverance. It's about deliverance by the work of God. It is about peace with God, and God wants us to know about that. He wants that deliverance to be conveyed to us, by, which is why he did so, by apostles. And the true gospel is also about deliverance from the judgment of God. We're going to look at that next. So, we've looked at verse 1, and he writes to all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia. We've talked about grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in verse 4, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. There again we have something that man could never work out on his own because by nature we're not inclined to think of ourselves as sinful. See, this is the problem. We, our sin affects our capacity for thinking and understanding as well. So, you can't, you're not able to oversee the extent of your problem. In order to really understand the true extent of sin, you would have to be sin-free. The fact that you're a sinner means that your own sight on these things, your eyes are blinded towards your own sin. So we are actually not inclined to think of ourselves as sinful. And all of popular culture supports that. From what people say, to the music that they listen to, to the movies that they watch, There's no sense of personal sin. And if you cannot even oversee the problem, you have not begun to find a solution. So how could we ever come to any kind of a conclusion on that? Yeah, God has provided deliverance in Christ. He says, Jesus gave himself for our sins. And there's echoes there of Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. God provided deliverance from sins in Christ. And because we're delivered from sin, we're delivered from this age that we're in. See, the Bible uses this terminology of two ages. There's this present age, and then there's the age to come. The present age is the age of this world. Many Jews especially the more radical ones expected that God would eventually intervene into this present age. They saw this age, their age, for the wicked thing that it was, and they wanted God to intervene. He would bring this age to an end, and he would inaugurate a new age. But what they, what they didn't expect was that this new age, these last days, were inaugurated by the person, by the resurrection of Christ, a new age in salvation history. And what they also didn't understand and what we sometimes don't understand is that we live in the overlap between two ages. 
So you have this past age, which is fading away, and the age to come, which has been inaugurated by the resurrection of Christ, a new age in salvation history. And in a sense, Christians live in this overlap. The new age is here. It has come, but the old one is not completely gone yet. In principle, we have been delivered from this evil age. Our sins are forgiven. We are being renewed, but our final deliverance is not yet complete. We still live in this world, which still has a lot of issues, a lot of problems, a lot of sinfulness, and we are influenced by that. And yet God has delivered us from this age and is delivering us, and that is our salvation because the, this age, the world of this age, is under judgment. It's on this very point of freedom that we spoke about earlier. You see, this world celebrates sin in all of its forms. Sometimes it does so overtly, as is the case with Pride Month. It flaunts sin, it delights in its expression. Christians should abhor all of that. And it, it does that in the name of personal freedom. Sometimes it does so more subtly when people have the attitude of, well, no one's going to tell me what to do. Occasionally, elders encounter that in, in visits with members. That's the same kind of rebellion. It's the same kind of spirit of lawlessness, the spirit of this age. It's just hidden. It comes in a different package, but it's the same thing. But in the end, whether rebellion is open or hidden, it's rebellion either way. You see, it's one of the most misunderstood things of our time that people think that they're free when they're actually constrained by their desires and by their fears. They are slaves to sin. Jesus said everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Peter, or the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 2 verse 19, whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. By nature, we are all enslaved and people are unable to deliver themselves. They are headed for eternal condemnation and judgment, and they have no idea. That's why they need the true gospel. The true gospel is deliverance from the judgment of God, and the judgment is coming. Make no mistake. It says in Romans 2 verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Elsewhere it says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, they will not escape. Second Peter 3 says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming. It is a big flashing sign. As surely, as you can see, the flashing sign at a railway crossing that indicates that a train, a freight train is coming. So surely do these texts tell you God's judgment is coming. It is a real thing. And you need to think about that when you reflect on the age in which you live, dear brothers and sisters, because we live in this present age, but we cannot be a part of this age because the Lord Jesus, like he says here, has given himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And it is a marvelous thing. But do you understand what deliverance means? It's the same word used in Acts 7 verse 34. 
Stephen, before he dies, he retells the story of what happened in Egypt. And God says there, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. It's the same word. And so there's this whole Old Testament background of a God who delivers people from judgment, who delivers a people for himself, who's bringing them to a certain destination and who will obliterate anything that stands in its way, who will bring judgment, first on the Egyptians, then on the Canaanites, a small picture of the final judgment to come. And he says, God has delivered you from that. God has delivered us. He's delivered us from sin. He's delivered us from the effects that sin has upon us. He's delivered us from the coming judgment over sin. He will deliver us from everything that sin has done to this world. One day this world will be renewed. It will be the home of righteousness. And you will never see anything sinful again. Can you imagine? But we're not completely there yet. We're going there, but we're not there. We live in the overlap between those two ages. And God has delivered us from this present evil age. He will one day deliver us from it permanently. Do you believe that? The true gospel is about deliverance from the judgment of God, deliverance from the age which lies under his judgment. But if you say you believe that, why are we not living accordingly? We're living as if we're afraid of missing out. Out of this age. Look at how many free reformed people spend way too much time on social media. Like this constant stream of information coming at us. All this stuff. You can't think when you've always got new stuff coming in. You can't reflect. And the very nature of social media is such that if you ignore it for a while, you get this fear of missing out. You know, for some people, and studies have been done on this, it's, it's very traumatic to turn off their phone for, an, for, a, for a day. They can hardly do it. There's this intense anxiety that they're missing out. And it happens with news media too, and if you followed anything about the discussion of Facebook in the news, meta now, um, you know that, that, that news and social media blend together in a way that there's algorithms now that are designed to feed you the sort of thing that you're going to read. So once you start um, following a certain train of thought, and then there's more and more information that supports that, that, that comes, comes into that. This is why our society is so polarized. This is why these discussions on issues in the last two years have been so unhinged. The system is designed to feed you the sort of thing that you're going to read, and if you don't read it, you get anxiety because you're going to miss out. But that whole, you need to take a big step back and think about what age are we in? This whole way of thinking is a fundamentally secular perspective. The secular perspective is this world is all that there is. This age is the only one that will ever exist, and you need to make sure you don't miss out on any of it, and we are buying into it. We are. It's a perspective motivated by fear. Why is there so much anxiety also in our midst? And not to judge anyone sitting here today who struggles with anxiety. There, there can be different reasons for people that have never struggled with anxiety or depression. Be grateful. 
But there is this, this sort of background question, why do we see so much more of this now? When in previous generations we didn't. Correlation does not equal causation, but does it have anything to do with a constant input of information and sometimes problems over which you have no control, which you cannot affect, which you can only read? It's fear. We don't want to miss out. Why is that? Don't you realize that all this stuff is part of the present evil age? Don't you realize that God is working towards judgment over this age? Do you not realize the scope, the extent of that judgment? Do you not know that if you invest yourself into this age, your life will be wasted? Your life, your one and only life, will be wasted. The true gospel is about deliverance. We've seen it's by the work of God, from the judgment of God. It's also for the glory of God. And we'll pay attention to that last. It's always the question that you end up with after you think about this for a while. Why did God do it? Why does he deliver us? Verses 4 and 5 of our text give two reasons. The first is because it was his will. The will of God is what he wished to do. Why does God save sinners? Because it's his good pleasure to do so. He took the initiative. He wanted to do this. The idea originated with him. Our qualities did not factor into this in any way, shape, or form because this decision was made long before the present age was created. So you think about the unfathomable kindness of God. Verse 4 says, Jesus gave himself to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. It was God's good pleasure to become our God and our Father. See in verse 1, it's through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So, you know, you think here of what the catechism says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ then in verse 4, has become our God and our Father. What an astounding thing for him to do. Why would he do such a thing? How could such deliverance ever be ours? And yet our text says that it is. By the work of God and from the judgment of God, and he did it for one reason, so that we can glorify God. What is God's glory? One of those theological words that we use but don't understand. Um... Briefly speaking, it's the visible representation of his splendor and his majesty. The glory is meant to be acknowledged by us. That's why Psalm 29 says, glory to the God on high. It's meant to be acknowledged. We're meant to say yes or wow. To acknowledge God's glory, to glorify him. That's what it means when it says to God be the glory, that we acknowledge his glory. And do you think that that can ever only be with your words? Is that only what we do here? His glory is meant to be made visible in our lives. Think, think about, about yesterday too. The wedding address, 1 John 4 verse 12b. No one has ever seen God. But if we love God, then his love is, is made manifest in us. It's shown in us. His glory, the essence of his being, shows in our lives the true gospel is about deliverance. God has delivered us from sin, from the effects of sin, 
from the judgment over sin one day, from everything that sin has done to us and to this world. So life is not about your freedoms. Life is not about your fears. Life is about something much bigger than that. That's about a God who delivers us comprehensively from destruction, who renews us for his service, who, who deserves every piece of credit for that. There is not a single thing that you can do to add to that. If nothing in you that makes you innately worthy of deliverance. Yet the true gospel says God delivers sinners anyway. He does it out of grace. And it's easy to forget. Then you become uncertain or dissatisfied. Then you begin to doubt the true gospel. And that's why you need to revisit it every week. You need to be regularly reminded of the grace of the living God. That's the only way that you're ever going to make progress in your spiritual life. The only way that you're ever going to get past the things that confront you now is over and over, you go back to the grace of God. That's what this letter did for the Galatians. May it do the same thing for us. Amen.